This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Koberline. You've seen the photos online of the giant swirling garbage patch in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The reality is not quite so dramatic, but still a serious issue to scientists and others concerned with the health of the Earth. Today we're going to hear from Dr. Matthew Hoffman, an assistant professor of mathematics at the Rochester Institute of Technology, about how scientists are measuring and modeling the pollution floating in our oceans and Great Lakes. So I've been reading about this massive pile of trash out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Because of the ocean currents, all the plastic and everything gets kind of swept into this one area. So yes and no, right? So the the, okay. the, the general oceanographic perspective is right, that the, you know, there are these gyres in the ocean, mm-hmm. that, that the dominant currents are these circular patterns. The western boundary currents are these swift moving, like the Gulf Stream, okay. right, that, yeah. that come northward from the equator in the northern hemisphere. And right, their, their primary role right. is bringing heat from the tropics up right. to the north, and then the, it continues the sort of in a circle, and it yeah. comes comes across the cold towards, comes down, and yeah, kind towards of... you know England in the Atlantic, and right. then there's a similar thing in the Pacific. There's something right. called the Kuroshio Current, which okay. is the equivalent to the Gulf Stream off the On coast the of side. Japan. And so, yeah, the, these travel in in a circle, and there is this called the Ekman Current, which actually is sort of a result of Coriolis that tends to point in the northern hemisphere to the right of right. motion, and so there is this this current that then moves things into the middle. Kind of like the eye of a storm. Yes. And, and, and in fact, sort of the opposite of what you think about if you were swirling a glass. Because if okay. you're swirling a glass, then you, they, it, the, the, it the force is out, out yeah. but here it's, sort, it's of, sort of in. Right. So there is this tendency to have them coalesce. And, mm-hmm. and there is definitely uh, a lot of plastic and, and other things that get dumped into the oceans. And as a result, they, there do tend to be higher concentrations in specific locations that correspond to these areas right. where, where the currents are, are pushing them. And when you say higher concentrations, I mean, is this something that if you try and sail to it, you're going to see this massive pile yeah, of trash? Yes, so this, this is one of the biggest misconceptions <laughs> when you hear about these things, is that it's larger than Texas. Yeah, I don't larger know, than Texas. Choose your, you favorite, think the size choose of your Texas, favorite comparison you of a large thing. Or right. something. Yeah, and, and a lot of times you'll even see, you know, on the internet or things, these, these images of these real massive garbage piles in water right. that aren't aren't actually the garbage patch in the Pacific. Right. These are these, these tend to be pictures from you know rivers or, or bays or right. even things right. that people have. Yeah, have you see said. some of these pictures where the rivers just clog yeah. up. Yeah, and, and then that's not what what happens in the Pacific Ocean at all. Okay. You know, you could you could take a boat and go through it and not actually see anything. So you wouldn't even notice. Um, Unless it's you quite possible you wouldn't notice. I mean, you might, right? There's, there's a lot of large garbage in the oceans, and, right. and especially with things like you know the tsunamis that happened in Asia wash some right. of these wash some massive, of massive of things, or, or people just throw them away sometimes. So you right. know there are these refrigerators floating that you might run into <laughs> um, in the middle of the ocean, but that's not predominantly what, what people are talking about there. Right. Um, it, it's actually more of a you know you'll hear the term thrown around. Um, people talking about it as more of a soup, and a lot of these things have sort of been traveling for a bit they're in the salt water they're they're in the sun if they're near there and they they tend to break down a little bit and so you you have a lot of little broken down pieces of of garbage and plastic that form and and are not maybe on the surface but maybe just below the surface um maybe get mixed up a little bit in the this mixed layer which is so how big are the the typical pieces i mean we're talking about like Uh, sugar cube sized or is it so actually even smaller i mean you know they measure a whole bunch of them um you know part of the problem is that you can't totally see them past a certain size, but there's a range of sizes. And so people are, are, are talking from, you know, millimeter or lower. People do study this by by taking nets out there, mm-hmm. very, very fine nets, and then right. 
doing studies where they, they collect all these bits and the particles and they run them through sieves to, right. to filter out the sizes. There's a bunch of different categories, and I wish I could remember exactly what the right. the size breakup is, but you know, there's macroplastic and microplastic and microscopic plastic. Right. When asteroids, for example, they come in a range of sizes, but they are more numerous the smaller you go. So you get a few big ones, and then you know, if you had one big one, you'd have ten medium size and a hundred tiny ones and a yeah. thousand microscopic ones. Yes. So it would seem like that would be the same type of thing where yeah, the smaller is- you go, the more you've got. I believe has been the case with a lot of them, although I, I don't remember exactly what the distribution that people have found out in the, the Pacific tends to be. But it, depending on how you study them, right, you'll see different things. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there's there's been these people taking cruises, scientific cruises, right, right, right. And, and doing nets to try to catch these, and then doing counts right. where they actually have to sit there and count by hand. Right, right. All this is what you have graduate students. This is what for. this is what graduate students <laughs> are for exactly. Uh, undergrads even. Right? Undergrads even. Um, Go ahead and count that stuff. Yeah, doing yeah, science. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Um, or even you'll see studies where there are counts from inside from the stomachs of animals. So th- this is this right. is the kind of thing that, that you hear a lot about is because you do get some of these very small plastic beads right. that will end up in in fish or birds or, or these sorts of things will travel through the food chain. Um, so there have been counts in the stomachs and then is not that the most problematic thing? I mean, the, it doesn't sink. Right. So it's um, not just going to the bottom of the ocean. Some of it, oh, some of it does, actually. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these things tend to be, you tend to think of them as neutral density, um, mm-hmm. but it might be that that's just what we see because that's it's what there. We see. Yeah, the rest um, of the There have been estimates that maybe as much as 70% of them actually end up at the bottom at some okay. point and actually aren't floating on the surface. So right. it is sort of unclear. So In terms of the vertical distribution, that that's something right. that's not very clear right now at and all. And it's the food chain that becomes a problem. The food chain is one of the one of the things that okay. people are worried about. You know, that you definitely can find examples of them in various wildlife and and you know, so they get eaten. They when they break down, they can release some toxic substances, right. Right. some of the chemicals and when the plastics eat plastic, that break down. And that's what yeah. Doing. Yes, and so so that can be a problem, and it can travel up a little bit, like a smaller animal eats them, right, and they end right. up in in, in sort small of a bigger fish animal. Eat the the plastic, I, you know, the there big has fish a, eat the right. small fish, and then you've got plastic in the yeah. big fish. Yeah, and I don't I don't think there's been a lot of uh, people with with plastic and uh, from eating these, but it's yeah. definitely maybe the next level down or so that that, that people yeah. have have seen that. So that's that's a concern. Um, there's still some research being done that I know of. The people are looking into the different types of organisms that grow on these plastics because um, they do get biofoul. There's a, you know, so, so right. there, there are bacteria and things that the then grow on these plastics. All of a sudden, that that now there's plastic there, right. so then they evolve the adaptability And so exactly to, what, to use what, what happens with that, I think, is still something that a lot of people right. are researching and is, is an interesting category. But, but, you know, the sort of effect is an interesting question, and it's one of those that there's definitely a, I think, an initial visceral reaction to, oh God, there's this massive, right? This path thing of the garbage. size of Texas right. is out in the Pacific. Exactly. That and can't be good. Yeah. And the, the other stuff that's great is there, there was a there was a paper in Science that just came out this past month where they tried right. to estimate the input of plastic into the oceans, looking at economic factors, looking at all the different right. nations, what their, you know, how much their industrial waste they're producing, mm-hmm. how what much the, is accounted what for, what the population centers are, what their treatment and, you know, right. what, what their measures are in terms of making sure that they don't release this. Right. Also, where the, where the population centers are near the water or not. Any yeah. try to account we like for, living by the water. We do. As yeah. People, it's, so. it's, <laughs> It, it used to make shipping really nice, and it's, yeah. it's pretty. It's pretty yeah. before well, all the garbage came in. Right. Um, yeah, <laughs> but anyway, so they did. They did this. They did this estimate, and um, they they had a great 
a way of distilling this that I've heard on a number of a number of places where they mm-hmm. where they said basically the amount of garbage that they that they came up with it, it it amounts to I think five plastic garbage bag full of plastic per foot of coastline oh, is it was was their estimate and so it, it's a nice example of um, fun science but also a, a fun way to describe what they were doing because right. so definitely an image, how much that is that, that an image that, that sits that sits in, yeah, yeah per year per, I believe per year I think I think per it was year. I believe. Um, yeah, so that's, so there's a lot that that goes in there, and and yeah. there's definitely a sort of as I said, there's this reaction to that that's got to be that's got to be bad. Yeah, I mean, you, right. yeah, that can't think, be good. It can't be good. I mean, it, does it go away? I mean, does it? Right. So some of it degrades slowly, and yeah. some of it eventually might sink. Um, I said mm-hmm. maybe as much as seventy percent. But you know, there's this question of exactly what effects it has, and. I guess sort of the where it where it ranges on the the list of things that we need to deal with right. with regards to our effect on the environment. That that, that would be a, a potentially debatable one. But I that's, mean, that's one the thing, ultimate question. One thing right? about the garbage patches is that they tend to be in regions of the ocean where there there weren't as vibrant ecosystems to begin with. Not that there wasn't life there, but just because of so the weaker ecosystem gets more polluted. Than well, a it's, a, it's not necessarily it's weaker. Is... Weaker. It was just there tends to be less biological activity in okay. those regions of the ocean because of which so is uh, biomass in that sense. The more yes, yeah, so, I mean there's, there's living less, things you have there. Yeah, so there was less living things there to begin with. For okay, the most part. The, I mean, you know these tend to be sort of ocean deserts. Okay, um, that's kind of it's kind of weird. You think desert. ocean yeah. desert? Yeah, 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 it's like what? It, there's plenty of water here, right. but there's, there is plenty of water. <laughs> I have heard people say, and not 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 the people who you would normally think about saying this, but you know, scientists mm-hmm. saying is sort of this: if all of this garbage that we're doing ends up in the middle of the Pacific, right? Um, in some ways, you as know, long as it's not in my backyard. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there there are certainly worse places yeah. that it could be. But um, does, I mean, it does raise an interesting point because we think of pollution as bad. Yeah, and I know in in physics we have that same type of thing where it's radiation is bad. Yes and no, because radiation is bad, but bananas have radiation because they have potassium in it. And and the amount of that you get is not a big deal. So it's it seems almost like heresy to ask the same question about pollution. Is it right? How much pollution? I mean, it's it's obviously not great, but right. how much pollution is that big of a deal? Yeah, it's definitely not ideal on it, and a big and it is sort of a big yeah. deal in some sense. But then there's the question of exactly what the impact is and right. what it would take to clean it up, which is which is a whole other it, issue. Is I mean, you know, cure worse than the than the problem? And yeah, or you know, it, it doesn't need to be cleaned up right now. Versus, right. do we just need to do a better job of? making sure stuff doesn't get in there into the future there's that there's that sort of thing right i mean it's it's not quite like some of these oil spills where it's like this needs to be cleaned up right there isn't a lot of benefit to the oil spill and it's it's immediate and by the coast and by the coast right that's the other part and so this is the coastal pollution that's a problem more now the other thing about the um so-called garbage patches is that they're you know it's not just one there's a few places where you get sort of convergence of currents and and there tends to be more there Right. right, but it's not sort of this cohesive unit that sits there in the in the middle right. of the Pacific, um, and that's helpful too because um, actually, you know, you start thinking about hey, there's probably a lot of garbage in these other bodies of water too. So, right. you know, you've seen in the past in the past five years or something a, a lot more interested in what's going on in the Great Lakes. You know, is there right. is there all the of the larger uh, source uh, of fresh water yeah, in the world? Uh, yep. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, for us, us, it's right here. Uh, yeah, it's right by the um, coast. So. Yeah, so there's a lot of interest in this sort of well right. as well, trying to figure out is, what, is in what the, the impact in is. the Great Lakes. Are there any like big patches? Yeah, I guess it's uh, it's unclear yet whether they're big patches. Again, it's still it's hard to observe, and a lot of right. the data that people get in the Great Lakes, um, there was just a study that came out. Um, in the Journal of Great Lakes Research about observations of plastics Mm -hmm. um, and and a number of the studies that have been done. And a lot of the results, just people um, from beach cleanups, right, recording what they're seeing, um, what the debris right. is, and because we do that, I mean, there, there's that on the regular basis. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of this kind you know, of but nonprofit, back. and you know, so, yeah, right. so a lot of it ends up on shore, especially right. this this close, and they are getting cleaned up. Now, there's you know, some issues about whether there's bias because the cleanups tend to happen in populated, you know, popular yeah, beaches. Yeah, so yeah. how the much well-to-do neighborhoods in. get a lot more cleansing than so, the poor neighborhoods? Um, if there's a public beach, it's probably going to be cleaned up more than the uninhabited shoreline and right, so right. the question is because there's more people there you know are that counts reliable right. but the, the other thing that's interesting both in the pacific and, and the great lakes so far is there's definitely plastic there but some of the counts you hear are you know you hear people talk about a high concentration well actually a very high concentration of plastics would be say and they normally talk about counts right so right. so they're, they're, they're talking about you know whether it's a, a microplastic or a microscopic number right. number of units right. of plastic right but you see numbers that are less than one unit per meter square. Okay. Okay. And this, so this, maybe this is a high one bit of plastic, right? One like one, the size of a grain of sand or something would be right. my, my, per would, cubic meter per, so. per square meter of, per square of meter. area. Okay. Right? Would okay. be would be a good would be a fairly high plastic distribution. You know, and, and probably if you get the if you tried to filter down more and more, maybe it would go up a little bit. But I mean, you know, you're still this is this is a little bit far from this picture of. You know this so, this giant garbage patch that you can walk on, right? On it's the not, order not quite of, a of floating grams per square meter or something. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Okay. And which is which is sort of a, a high concentration. Uh, right. Yeah, again, it's something I'm interested in. It's something I I think is right. is worrying, but it's it's one of those things that you hear a lot about. It's something I always I end up talking right. to people a lot about because it gets sort of blown up. But it's it's so it is a problem. It's just good to have an idea of what what the actual issue is and and where where it fits in and how to frame it properly. You're listening to One Universe at a Time. I'm your host, Brian Corberline. We've been talking with Dr. Matthew Hoffman, Assistant Professor of Mathematics at the Rochester Institute of Technology, about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. In the second half of our show, Dr. Hoffman gets to ask the questions, and I get to answer. Today, he'd like to know about how astronomers have learned to establish the age and size of our universe. Stars. We have. Okay. We say we know. We know a lot about them. They've got this life cycle, right? Yep. They last for billions of years, explode in supernovas, yeah, all that type right. of thing. Yeah, right. And yep. so, how do we know that? Right. We we don't have a lab experiment of a, right because we're star only, that we're only looking at them. them for you know a couple of decades. Right. And and versus the only of real years. brief times. You know, we we can only see right. them. Right. The thing is that even though we can't watch an individual star for billions of years, we can look at lots and lots of stars all at the same time. A good analogy would be, you know, suppose there were aliens from a different star that could take an image of the Earth, but only for one second. So they could take this this very detailed image, so detailed that they could see individual people, but they only see it for one second. And if you, if you did that, then you would see some people that were old, you would see some people that were young, you would see children, you would see adults, you would see people working, you would see people sleeping. And by looking at this whole range of people, you can start putting the pieces together and go, well, we know that sometimes they sleep, we know that sometimes they're awake. If you did the statistics for how many people were asleep at any given time, you could say this is about how long 
they sleep. You see, there's a lot of stars out there, right? So, right. So can you take right. pictures of similar things, of things that you think are similar, and and do statistics on that too, or is it really just looking at one star? Well, you're looking at a, at a whole bunch of different stars. In okay. fact, one of the one of the early cases in which we could start understanding stellar evolution was something called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. And basically what it is, is you look at a, a whole range of stars, as many stars as you can see, and you measure how bright they actually are and what color they are, which is a measure of what temperature they are, because hotter stars are more blue than cooler stars, which are more red. So if you plot a whole bunch of stars on a graph, this Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, you get kind of horizontal is color, vertical is brightness. And what you see is most of the stars actually lie along a kind of diagonal line, kind of this diagonal curve, in which the hotter they are, the brighter they are. And the vast majority of stars are there. Then you see some that are really cool, but really bright. And then you see some that are really bright, but very hot, or not very bright, but very hot. How did we decide that those were the, the two important things to plot? I've always kind of wondered about that that diagram, right? It's like, are there, are there a lot of these things that are it, in the trash can with different... Well, it, it, it actually kind of comes out the fact that those are two things that are fairly easy to measure. Okay. So, so historically, we can do brightness because we can tell, we can see how bright a star appears just in the sky. That's called apparent magnitude. And then we can, if we know the distance, we can calculate what it's absolute magnitude is, what its actual okay, brightness is. Now, how do I know how far away it is? Well, you can tell how far away it is in different ways. One of the common ways is parallax. So if you look at a star compared to very distant stars, parallax is something that you would see how we get depth perception. Right. So like the classic I... thing of hold your thumb up, look at it with one eye, switch eyes, and the thumb appears to shift relative against you know the distant yeah, right. trees. Yeah, and 3D stuff works. Because right, you, and 3D you put red and blue images work. with... Right, or the, polarized images yeah. in the case of modern movies. And so by measuring that parallax, the bigger the parallax, the closer the star. There are other ways that we can do things. And actually, even though they're that far away, we mm-hmm. can still resolve that difference on Earth? Yeah, we can actually measure the angle to a few fractions of a second of arc. So we can do... I. Th- think the latest ones are about 1500 light years yeah, i find that amazing with that, that it, it's it just... it's an amazing precision when you really come down to it but that only gets us to a certain distance and then there's other methods that we can do there are there are variable stars called cfid variables that we know from parallax have a certain brightness based upon how they vary in brightness the thing about the cfid variables is i kind of got, got to go back to the first question which is how do we know that that's how they behave in the first place right well in, in the case of cfid variables yeah. we know that we can measure what their absolute brightness is because we've measured their parallax and so henrietta swan levitt measured the absolute brightness of them mm-hmm. on average with the period at which they oscillate, how fast they oscillate or how slowly they oscillate, and found this relationship in that the brighter they actually are, the faster they oscillate. And so we can actually use that to go to the distance of galaxies. And then we can look at things like supernovas and galaxies. There's a a type of supernova called type 1a supernovae that tend to explode at the same brightness all the time. And so they're used as standard candles, and we can go billions of light years out. So we can actually do this. Yeah, it's know, kind of amazing. So out. basically, the, a lot of the early research was trying to figure out what these sort of standards are. Right. To, finding finding those standards. How do we yeah. determine the, yeah, the scale finding of these the, sort right. of waypoints? Or, or and that's yeah. one of the things that we think of astronomy as being this this very ancient tradition. It's like one of the earliest sciences, and yet. In terms of the scale of the universe, we actually didn't know anything beyond our galaxy. We didn't know if anything was actually beyond our galaxy until the 1900s. 
So I think in the 1920s or 1930s, there was a great debate about whether the Milky Way was everything in the universe or whether the Andromeda Nebula, which we now okay. call the Andromeda that was Galaxy. So these are obviously people had seen right. we in can the see sky the Andromeda see the Nebula. Yeah. Nebula well, they, they used to call it the Andromeda okay. Nebula. We now call it the Andromeda Galaxy. But you can see it, but how far away is it? For that debate, what ended up being, you know, one of the, I don't know, was there a smoking gun? Was there, well, was there, there actually, uh, something there that ended wasn't. that debate? It's kind of interesting because the, the debate was, if you take, for example, the Andromeda Galaxy, is it actually a close nebula in the range of, of the Milky Way? Right. Or is it millions of light years away? Is it a separate island universe, mm-hmm. you know, far away? And the, the kind of more prominent scientists would say that it was actually close. And there was a guy who was arguing that it was actually um, a million light years away or more. Okay. And his argument was, if you look at, in the Andromeda Galaxy, you find what they called nova, what we now know are supernova. Mm-hmm. But you would see these nova exploding in, in the Andromeda Galaxy. And if you counted them up, they were vastly more than what we would see in our own galaxy. Okay. So if you're getting all those nova in one spot... That clearly has to be it's enti- an entire galaxy. It clearly has to be the size of the Milky Way, so it has to be far away. Now, the counter-argument of that was, well, wait, if they're millions of years away and they're actually exploding, they would have to be far brighter than any nova we have ever right. seen. Well, it turns out they are. they are. And so that's how we know. It actually was the CFID variables that allowed us to determine that distance. So eventually you, people were able to really observe the CFID right. variables. So Henrietta there. Lovett got the relationship for CFID variables and then... Uh, Edwin Hubble and a few others could actually measure that distance and said, no, they, they really are millions of light years away. That's a, I mean, it's just a crazy sort of conceptual shift trying to imagine. It is. Wrapping yeah. your head I around mean, that Less than a hundred years yeah. ago, our galaxy was all there was to the universe. Yeah. And, and in just a single century, we've gone from that to not only is the universe billions of light years across. And still growing. And still growing. But it's billions of years old, and it's expanding, and it has you know billions of galaxies right. out there. It, it, we've radically changed. In many ways, this past century in cosmology has changed as radically as going from you know, from an Earth-centered universe to a sun-centered right. universe. Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting when you're looking at all these stars, right? You're you're getting them at different points, even if they're similar types of stars, right? right. Different, slightly different points in their lifetimes. Right. We can we can tell how bright they are by measuring their distance, yeah. so we know their magnitudes, and that's fairly straightforward yep. to do. And getting their colors, we can do, particularly now with with photographic images, we can do what their colors are. And we now know at the time when they were first doing it, they didn't know that color was related to temperature. Right. But we now do know that color is related to temperature for most stars. There's, you know, some weird ones. But we find this this general trend that we now know is what we call the main sequence. And statistically, since most of the stars are there, stars on average must spend most of their lives there. If we know that people, we find a third of, of humans happen to be at a house, we know that a third of their time is spent at home. Well, if we spent most of the time of the stars is in that main sequence, we know that most of them are there. It's funny, though. I mean, going back to your original analogy about aliens looking at Earth, right? right. I mean, it, it seems, okay, you see you see these really small, ba- what we would know are babies, right? right. You see, right. you know, younger people, you see these right. old people. but uh, And so certainly we, we have an understanding of what the life cycle is, so it makes sense that that would be a logical right. conclusion. But in some sense, wouldn't it seem just as logical to say, well... 
some people clearly are born gray and and some people are born sort of tiny these are okay. these are different well well to give to give an idea they're not evolving into one another right that these are just completely right. different, different beings, you, right we are also relying on physics so okay. we are we, we're not just looking yeah. at the statistics i mean we you'd also see the you know, of it. all sorts of other animals and you would right. necessarily say well that right. clearly the dog is part of the life cycle well yeah i mean to give you an example if these aliens actually were you know they're living things similar to us then then they would know that organisms can grow right. or or decrease in size. They know that they that if they have the same physical makeup, that they are are not changing one. I mean, they they are related mm-hmm. genetically, for example. But you could take a simple example. If you looked at the height of humans, based right. upon the statistics, and if you did the statistics of heights, what you would find is you you have little humans, babies, children. And then you find that the vast majority of them are actually of, of an average adult height. So, so given that you know a human can last seventy or eighty years, seventy mm-hmm. percent of them are adult sized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you find some that are really tiny, and and a very few that are in between mm-hmm. statistically. Yeah. And so from that you could say, well, they start off small, and they enter a period of rapid growth until they become an adult size, and that's the size. For the rest of their lives, and okay. statistically, we can do that. Okay. And so you said also, there's there's sort of the physics that that we think we know about the universe too. Right. And gradually, right, telescopes. Well, you were able to look at the spectral characteristics. Right. We can right? look at, and that way you can actually get. Before. Yeah, you can get more than just right brightness and color, but you can actually get right the chemical components uh, in a, in a lot of senses, right. which lends credence to some of the the physics that you think is. There's happening, a correlation right? between the physics and the observation. So, if we look at our sun, for example, we know that fusion occurs in its core. We know we can see neutrinos coming off of it. We can calculate by particle physics what the energy released is for that. And so, if you look at the neutrino rates, if you look at the size of the sun, what the inner temperature would be, you can calculate out how long the sun would burn. And you get something on the order of 10 billion years. And you get that the sun is about 5 billion years old right now. If you look at other similar massed stars, you find that, in fact, that the statistics mm-hmm. give you about 10 billion years. Yeah. You find larger stars last less time. Less time. And cooler stars, red dwarfs, for example, will last much longer. So we can look at you know, the physics of what we know from our sun, looking at it close up. Close up being, you know, 93 million miles or so. Uh, We can then apply that to other stars. So then you've got this main sequence where Mm -hmm. most stars sort of travel along this this path. And then at at some point, most of them... Stay on there, or do they take they take a they they, they leave they at leave. some point. Yeah, they so, all basically exit the main sequence. At right. Some point. The, basically, the life cycle of a star is driven by two things: gravity trying to squeeze it, and its own interior trying to produce heat to counteract that. So, our sun, for example, our sun was cooler in the past and has been heating up over time, and it will continue to do that. And the reason it's doing that is that gravity squeezing it down. It's fusing to create heat and pressure that counters the gravity. But as it burns fuel, it becomes somewhat more dense. And so gravity is going to squeeze it a little bit more. It heats up in order to create more pressure to counteract that. And so the main sequence is this kind of gradual brightening and heating. But eventually, the fuel runs out, and it can collapse or explode depending on its size. Obviously, this is something we don't have to worry about for a while here, but it's, we can we see lots and lots of examples of it. Yeah, you can see stars die, you can see stars that have died. So, so we know that, even though we're still in one little sliver of time. 
I've been talking with Dr. Matthew Hoffman, an assistant professor of mathematics at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Our program is produced at RIT with the support from the RIT College of Science. I'm your host, Brian Koberlein. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time. Thank you.